You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I do hope that you have the next hour free to accompany me on a tour of the arts. This week, the sad news was announced that there will be no art in the park this June. And it is far from being the only outdoor art festival that has had to cancel this year. Many of the country's other art festivals, including all that are on the same weekend as Art in the Park across the Midwest, are having to take another year off or postpone until later in the summer. Festivals are complex events to set up and manage. There are a lot of moving parts behind the scenes that only the festival director knows about. What may seem simple to the public... A load of tents in a park with artists selling their wares has, in fact, layers of organisation, permits, volunteer management, financial considerations and much more that is no match for an additional set of pandemic protocols. I know it was an incredibly tough decision to make and I stand by their executive director and their board for making this call. This week, we are off to the movies, two theatres and an art gallery. And, as always, it is a packed show. So if we are all sitting comfortably, then we shall begin our tour. First stop today, a new documentary film. The best way to learn most things is simply to do them, and that is the guiding philosophy at the University of Missouri's School of Journalism, where students learn through real-world production of news for radio, television and newspaper, as well as documentary filmmaking. And it is there at the Jonathan B. Murray Center for Documentary Journalism that a new documentary called Keep the Cameras Rolling, The Pedro Zamora Way, has been produced by student filmmakers and directed by my two guests this morning, Curator's Distinguished Teaching Professor William Horner and the director of the Jonathan B. Murray Center for Documentary Journalism, Stacey Wolfel. Good morning, Bill and Stacey. Good, Good morning. morning. So most Q&As with documentary filmmakers start with a question of how did you find your subject? But in this case, your subject, Pedro Zamora, was one of the biggest names in popular media to the early 1990s MTV generation, even attracting the attention of President Clinton. So Stacey, tell us, first of all, who was Pedro Zamora? Well, Pedro was, uh, before he became known as a reality TV star, was a AIDS activist, a very young one, starting as a teenager in uh, Miami, but quickly going to Washington, D.C. and other places to do that. And people really got to know him, though, as a, a star of The Real World in its third season from San Francisco where he was cast to be one of the roommates in the house living together in what was a a really groundbreaking show and a groundbreaking season for the show. And for those who were not watching MTV in the early 1990s, can you give us a little background on the MTV show, The Real World? Well, Bill, and you know, Bill was a a steady watcher of that. I'm going to let him answer that one because I'm in the group that was not watching it, but Bill definitely was. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) 
So, sure. The, uh, so this was a show that originated in 1992. It was one of the very first, you know, reality television shows, and the concept was pretty simple. And we think of it as kind of standard and, you know, maybe passe today, but you get seven people who've never met, and you put them in a house together, and you see what happens. Uh, and there's sometimes they get along, sometimes they don't get along. So the season that we're focused on is the third season of The Real World, which was in 1994. Uh, the first season was in was set in New York, and the second season was set in Los Angeles, and then the third season, which is the season we're looking at with Pedro, was in San Francisco. How is it different to Big Brother? Oh well, Big Brother they don't leave; <laughs> they're 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 trapped inside. So this is just they come and they live and. Um, you know, the original idea was that they were all kind of pursuing separate things. And as the show evolved, it became, you know, like everything, it gets, all of these concepts get, get a little hard to keep interesting after several seasons. So, you know, they would develop group projects for them to work on and that kind of thing. But in these early seasons, they're all kind of pursuing their own thing. They have different interests. In the season three that we looked at, there's a medical student and I want to be cartoonist who has since gone on to be quite successful. And, um, Pedro, who was an AIDS activist and a guy who was a bike messenger in San Francisco. So, you know, they just all kind of did different things and came and went from the house. So with the students working on this film, Pedro died several years before they were born and of a disease which is no longer a death knell for much of the world. So, Bill, what was the impetus for retelling his story? So I was in graduate school when this season aired. I was working on my master's degree and I was, you know, uh, probably at the top end of the demographic. I was 24, 25. And it struck me then uh, I was working on a, uh, my master's thesis was looking at the impact of World AIDS Day on public opinion and media coverage of World AIDS Day. And so it all kind of just yelled in my mind that this had to be having some impact thinking back to 26, 27 years ago about how different attitudes were about gay rights, about HIV and AIDS, that it had to be having some impact on public opinion. And I've always wanted to go back and look at that and and got to talking with Stacy several years ago, and he found it interesting as well. And then we found a bunch of students who, I think you might be alluding to, had not really watched or heard of the real world, certainly had not heard of Pedro. Um, so that was our first thing, right? We got them all together, and they watched the, the full series, the full season, and um, it was pretty obvious to them, too, that thinking back, trying to think of what it was like a quarter of a century ago, what an impactful thing this was. So it's really a, an examination not only of Pedro, who was an, a remarkable heroic person, but also of the impact that popular culture, culture can have on politics and policy. Well, it is a timeless story in that it is a story of love and friendship and bravery and the exuberance of youth. But it is also an incredibly time-significant story in that it is the story of an unchecked pandemic. So, Stacey, for the students who have been working on this film during their own pandemic, how has it helped them process the world in which they find themselves today? You know, maybe it it helped prepare them for that because the students were mostly finished with the film before the pandemic hit. We started the uh, field work, the production work, uh, two years before the pandemic, a year and a half before the pandemic. And we were done in the field well before the pandemic started. We were still in the editing room, but um, sort of wrapping things up at that point. So I think maybe it prepared them for that as they looked at a pandemic that they probably had really not thought about much before. 
and saw that it had some really deep political uh, implications and might have made them look at this pandemic a little bit differently. In the film, somebody talks about how Pedro's story, as highlighted by the Real World MTV show, was an extraordinary public moment. And for many people, it was the moment where they went from not knowing anyone with HIV or AIDS to feeling like they had a friend with AIDS because... Pedro had such a compelling personality and reality TV was allowing the world to have a relationship with him. So, Stacey, can you talk a little bit about how views of HIV and AIDS changed as a result of Pedro's season of The Real World? Bill Clinton is one of the people who appears in the documentary. We had the chance to interview him in New York. And he said at the time, at Pedro's funeral, in fact, that no one can say they don't know somebody with AIDS because they know Pedro based on the television show. And I think that really did humanize it. There were a number of cases going on at the time. Probably many people remember Ryan White, who was a boy who contracted AIDS through blood transfusions. And that was another case where people, this person was shot to the front. But the interesting thing about Pedro, I think, and something we try to address in the film is that while he was an AIDS activist, he was, a, through the real world, an activist for same-sex weddings. There's a wedding, you know, not, a, not an official wedding, as it wasn't legal at the time, but we see on the air a, a wedding between two men in love, and that was just unheard of. There weren't even people kissing on television at that time, but we did see Pedro and Sean kiss on the real world. And so it was changing not just understanding of the disease, but understanding of a lot of the people with that disease. I think it's interesting that when they they film interviews, people who were in the house with him and one of the girls says, you know, that was, she was a little um, concerned at first. But then in the end, she ended up taking him back to her hometown to meet her very conservative mother, who was a teacher. And he gave a talk in the classroom. And that the fact that she became comfortable living in the same house really took a lot of the stigma out of contact with people with HIV and AIDS. I think that's a, a interesting part of the film. And I guess that helped to change opinions too. That's Rachel Campos Duffy, who is you know known now as a Fox News personality. But she did. The other cast members, uh, they, they were all informed. Uh, Jonathan Murray, whose name our center bears here, was, of course, the creator, co-creator of The Real World, and he said they wanted to make sure everyone knew that somebody with HIV would be living in the house. And most of the cast members were like, sure. They said, I think uh, Judd Winnick says at one point, I gave them the answer they were looking for, which is, sure, I'm fine with that. And he didn't seem to have second thoughts about that much. But Rachel did, but did come around to accepting Pedro and, and of course, living there. Well, I wanted to ask you about Jonathan B. Murray, because when I saw his name in the documentary and I thought, hmm, is that a coincidence? <laughs> It, it is a coincidence, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, he is one of the talking heads. He is the person that created the uh, Jonathan B. Murray Center for Documentary Journalism with a giant gift that he gave to the university a few years ago. And and he, it was he and his business partner who came up with the idea of the real world. And I guess you could argue he could be considered the father of reality mm -hmm. TV or unscripted programs, as I guess you call them. Um, so there's an interesting arc there between documentary journalism and reality TV and Jonathan Murray's role in both. Stacey, can you talk a little bit about that arc as it relates to how you teach students? Yeah, John and I have talked about that. And long before this project came together, uh, we were talking about it. And he always sort of politely shrugs off that creator of reality TV. He says he was influenced heavily by an American family 
on PBS, which he feels like is the creation of reality TV, something he saw as a as a teen, I think, uh, growing up. And he has always found documentary and reality TV to to go hand in hand. And some of his programs we think about that are a little bit outrageous, the Kardashian programs that we feel are, are highly scripted and and not the real world at all. And he would admit to that, or not even admit, probably the wrong word, he would agree to that. But he does other programs, um, and he's moved on from his company now, but he's done plenty of other programs that were straight-up documentaries. And so it's always been his first passion. He's a graduate of the journalism school here. He worked in television news, got into doing television programming because he decided to make it because he thought, as a programmer, he couldn't find anything he liked. And he says, we might as well make our own programs. Bill, let me ask you about a couple of the people who are included in the film. Uh, we referenced already you have President Clinton and you also have Dr. Anthony Fauci. How did you get access to these two people? <laughs> well, um, so Dr. Fauci was actually not terribly difficult. Uh, you know, as Stacy mentioned, we went out to D.C. to conduct that interview in the spring of 2019. And so he was not quite as busy as he has been for the last year. <laughs> And um, and he was quite amenable. We tracked down his uh, the students tracked down contact information in his office, and we had a couple of email exchanges, and we had a meeting set up. And in fact, that was um, that was pretty fun. We got there, and I knew who he was from sort of the history of AIDS. He was so prominent in the fight against AIDS, and the students educated themselves on him. So you know, we got in there, and he wasn't quite ready. He was at some other meeting, and so his assistant let us in his office. And he's been in the same office for 40 years, and we just kind of got to look around. It's like a museum, really, with all the stuff he has on the walls. And, um, and you know, he's had meetings with the presidents that he served under in that office, and so it was pretty remarkable. So that one was not that hard to set up. The Clinton interview was a little bit more challenging. We had to work a few contacts to get that one set up. Uh, ultimately, Major Garrett, who is a CBS correspondent, he's actually the head of the, the Washington Bureau for CBS News now, is a, an alum of both Poli-Sci and the J School here at Mizzou. And so he's come and done events for, for both institute or both department schools. And uh, um, so we reached out to him and we said, you know, because we had tried sort of traditional ways. We tried contacting through the presidential library. We tried his office, which is in Harlem, and we weren't really getting anywhere. And so he helped us make a couple of contacts that then helped us make a couple of contacts. And eventually uh, we, we got the interview set up. But it took about nine months all from start to finish to get that one figured out. Were you there for that one? Did you send students by themselves or did you or Stacy go with them? I went with them. And and we were able to, they were very gracious. We wanted as many students, yeah, all together, you know, there were about 10 students that worked on the research and interviews that were poli-sci journalism double majors. And then there were some students from the documentary journalism program that worked on the, the camera work and the editing and the sound and all of that. They were very generous in letting us bring as many as could make the trip. Uh, so we took, we ended up taking about seven students in, and they all got to ask some of the questions that you see answered there in the documentary. Well, I mean, in the documentary, you have, what, a maximum of two minutes of Bill Clinton talking. That might be slightly <laughs> generous. I mean, how much did you film? And then when you're talking to somebody who is so busy, so presidential, so famous, I mean, how long do you have with them for what ends up being two minutes of final footage? Yeah, so we were there. Um, we were told originally 
that we would get about 20 minutes. He talked to us for on camera for at least a half an hour. Um, but then <laughs> the, really, the really remarkable part of that was that we were, he then took us in to, so we were in a conference room and then attached to that conference room. He has a gigantic office. It's not a huge suite that he's got there. Uh, it's this office building in Harlem and he's got a floor of it, I think. But anyway, he took us into his office, which also is like a museum, as you might imagine. And we spent, um, I think an hour in his office. He took us as a group. He was like a docent at a, at a, at a museum. <laughs> he took us around the room and we saw every single thing that he had. And he talked about every single thing. Then he took pictures with everybody. He took group pictures and individual pictures. It was uh, pretty remarkable, actually. Yeah. I'm sorry to miss that one, but I'll say that the students, as Bill talked about it, we, we ended up shooting in uh, New York, Washington, Miami, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. So students were around on all of those shoots. They got to go to all of those. And Bill and I sort of split them. And so you have half an hour of coverage of, of footage with Bill Clinton. And then you have to just slice it down to these little tiny pieces. Is there a way of seeing the whole footage? I mean, do you... I don't know. I guess there isn't really, but I mean, it seems like you have something really valuable that no one gets to see. So there is a way. We still have it all. <laughs> there, there is a way, as a matter of fact. We, uh, we had a lot of footage, as you might imagine, many, many hours of footage. And so one of the things that we've worked on in, in, along with working on the documentary is putting everything together pretty much uncut. The interviews are in a book that we're going to be publishing through the University of Missouri Press. So... That is a way to see, because we had lots of interviews. The students were very comprehensive in their research. They started, you know, kind of at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, pandemic, and did a lot of research there. We talked to medical people and researchers and scientists and and then the cast of the real world and all of that. So we have been working pretty hard um, in conjunction with working on the documentary on a book that will allow people to to read at least all of the interview stuff that we collected. Well, you were very kind to let me see the documentary in advance of any public viewing. But Bill, what are your plans for rolling out the film and the book? So the plans are that as soon as we're through some final little steps that we have to do, sort of legal steps and that sort of thing, and then we're going to start submitting it to film festivals. It's been submitted to a few that are end of summer, early fall. And that's our plan is to enter it in, in some film festivals. And then hopefully we'd like to see it streaming somewhere if possible. And there is a limited public screening coming up in Columbia. I mean, how limited is limited and how do you get on that guest list? <laughs> it's a test screening. So we're, uh, we're, we're careful to protect our premiere status here for one of these festivals. Mm. But we do have a test screening. And so it's at the Missouri Theater on Monday night at 7 p.m., Due to the COVID uh, restrictions on campus, people do have to, it's a free screening, but people have to register in advance. And if we haven't sent you that link, we can do that, Diana, so that you can share that with your listeners. Okay. Do you know what the link is? It's a, it's a mouthful. I can try to find Don't it worry. in a moment here. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a mouthful. I can put it onto our Facebook page and onto our web page for the show if people want to go and see that. Stacey, what, for you, what was the biggest takeaway from this story? You know, I, as a professor, uh, and Bill, I'm sure, is in the same boat, we want the students to uh, get experiences. And so the students who worked on this, and I think it's about 15 students total, 
had some amazing experiences. The, the travel for those of them who were able to do that to meet these figures, the cast members from the show, important people in Hollywood, Jonathan Murray, Bill Clinton, Anthony Fauci, was an amazing experience. And then just the experience of pulling something like this together, it was a massive undertaking that took you know close to two years to to finish. So to be able to see it go from start to finish, and now all the students who worked on it, in fact, have graduated. And we, we were able to include them. We had another test screening earlier, and they were able to zoom in and and talk to the audience who saw that. And um, they're very excited to see it go out in the world at festivals and beyond. And Bill, you, you lived this first time through by watching the TV series. How did making the documentary change your memory of that? Oh, wow. So that's an interesting question. You know, it was... What you see when you watch the documentary is a very um, processed, produced, edited version of events. So to hear the the cast members talk about their memories of that um, is really enlightening and really and really interesting. And and that season, I think you know they were very cognizant at the time of the importance of the story of Pedro. And and you know he did not live really very long. He died on the day they broadcast the last episode of his season, in fact. And so um, so you do get a strong sense of Pedro in watching it, but, but you, talking with the, the people that, that lived with him for that relatively short period of time, he's had a remarkably enduring impact on their lives. And they've really, a lot of them have dedicated their lives to, to keeping his message and his memory alive. And so I think that was the thing that, that was the most interesting to me was um, that in my memory, they got that story pretty remarkably accurate and, and actually didn't change a whole lot. Reality TV gets, I think, sometimes a bad rap for for twisting things and how they edit. Um, justifiably bad rap, I'd yep, say. Yeah, <laughs> justifiably. But I think in this case, they, uh, they really did justice to the story they were trying to tell. You know, there's an important moment, uh, Pam Ling, one of the cast members, talking about really, you know, as she looks back over everything that happens as Pedro's dying and says, they got it right, speaking about the producers of the show. She was really excited that they got it right. Well, the new documentary, Keep the Cameras Rolling, The Pedros and More Away, will have a limited test screening at the Missouri Theatre on Monday, May the 3rd at 7pm, after which it will hopefully get accepted at film festivals and find its way to a streaming service. Stacey Wolfel and Bill Horner, thank you so much for sharing this documentary and your time today. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Later this year, Lin-Manuel Miranda, he of Hamilton fame, is debuting his film directorial talents with a film adaptation of a 1990 musical called Tick, Tick, Boom. And if that name is not familiar to you, then it's sibling by the same composer, maybe, the Pulitzer and Tony Award-winning global sensation Rent. But before composer Jonathan Larson penned Rent, he wrote an autobiographical musical about a struggling musical composer. And it is this earlier musical which will be on stage at Capital City Productions in Jefferson City from May the 13th to 15th. And here to chat about the show is the production's director, Mike Azar, and its lead actor, Gordon Canachel. Welcome to the show, Mike and Gordon. Thanks for having us. Hello. So putting on a production of Tick, Tick, Boom is very timely, given its 2021 cinematic release. So no pressure there to either of you. But Mike, did you know this musical was going to get the Lin-Manuel Miranda treatment when you opted to direct it? I did. And that actually might have influenced my, my taking the directorial <laughs> role for this. 
because it's been delayed for at least a year now. So I'm, I was expecting it to already be out or to be closer to being out when we actually put the production up. That might have clouded, uh, muddied the water a little bit. So maybe it's better that it comes out later in the year that you can debut it first. So Gordon, you play the autobiographical lead, John, a yes. struggling composer who is going through something of a life crisis at the age of 30, still waiting tables and terrified that the clock is ticking and he may never be a Broadway success. Tell us where the story goes from there. He's very, um, he's very wary about how he's not wanting to turn 30 before he writes his really big phenomenon show, um, which is actually a Superbia. And Superbia is actually a show that was even before Rent. So he's really struggling to write this show, and he's he's really wanting to get it out. But then in the meantime, he has all these other other obstacles that are, are just constantly getting in his way. And he's just had it up to hear on on the whole i want to write my show but what else is going to happen well there's a three-person play there is you another actor called curtis sudduth and emma tracy tell us about who they are and the motivation of their characters so curtis sudduth plays michael which is uh, john's best friend and john is having to struggle with the you know reality that his best friend has actually moved on from the musical theater world and John is stuck in that really big bubble. And Susan is actually John's girlfriend, which he's having a lot of issues with, you know, trying to really reconnect that fling that they once had. And Jonathan is really, really struggling to actually do the theater plus actually manage manages time with his girlfriend, Susan. So there's a love interest, there's a best friend, and it's about the dynamics between the three of them as they work out what they want to do with the rest of their life right. from this moment of them being in their late 20s. Mike, this production is billed by Capital City Productions as one of its spots on the artist series. What does that mean in terms of the audience's experience? So it's maybe not as high of a production quality as a 50-person musical or some of the other things that Capital City Productions is known for, but it's kind of a chance to highlight some local artists and some smaller productions. It really is up to the director to kind of fill in how much they want to put into it. I mean, we still build sets, we still do costumes, we still do everything that you would normally do. This one's maybe a little easier to manage because we have just the three-person cast, but we also have a full band with this one. So we have a piano player, guitar player, bass player, drummer. I mean, that kind of adds to this whole rock music aspect of things. And that's kind of new for Capital City Productions. I mean, you've been in a new home for the past year, but in the old home, there was always recorded music. There was never really a space for a band. So now you get to have a full band, adding to the complexity for you. <laughs> it absolutely does. Um, I I definitely prefer live music as you know as opposed to tracks or something like that. It just it's such a better feel for all this, um, especially for for these musicians right here. And we, Gordon and Emma and Curtis, they they really shine with the full band behind them. Well, Gordon, I know the composer Jonathan Larson was pretty tight with Stephen Sondheim in real life, and much of Sondheim is famously difficult to sing. And I know you are no stranger to Sondheim, but are there any Sondheim-esque moments in Tick, Tick, Boom that are really vocally challenging? 
Oh man. Um, (laughs) (laughs) yes. then. (laughs) Yes. Um, so I was in uh, Sweeney Todd back in 2017 and if you if you really listen to how complex uh, Sondheim did all of his uh, wording and his songs and everything, I mean, uh, Jonathan Larson really, really tried to match that in this show. And you can really hear that in his music. Like he was the guru of, you know, Jonathan Larson. So, yes, you you really can hear it if you are a huge uh, Stephen Sondheim fan. Well, I know that, that your character is a 30-something playwright performer and you seem about the same age. Are there moments in this musical that really tug at your heart? There's there's one big monologue towards the end of the show and it's right before the song Why. And um, during rehearsal the other day, I was really, really getting uh, choked up because I was actually thinking on like real life friends and everything. Cause he's actually singing about his best friend, Michael. And it's a very, very moving, moving, touching song. And it really, really got me choked up the very first time that we actually ran through the song. And is that good in terms of uh, making it easier to act? Are you supposed to be choked up during that song? Like, can you imagine that feeling again for when you actually perform it? It's really going to be challenging. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> so I am definitely going to do my best. And it's it's really going to be one great, great show and one great song. So it's really going to come together. Mike, what do you love about this musical that made you want to direct it? So I just listened to some of the music that you can find on Spotify or, or wherever. And, and the music that I heard just brings me back to the 90s rock that I loved and grew up with. I mean, this, this is some good timeless nineties rock. This is, this is not your normal stuffy musical music. I mean, it's, it's powerful. It's different. It's, it has fun in moments. It's sentimental in moments. Um, so many really, really good songs. I don't even think there's a song that I don't like in this music. <laughs> um, uh, Jonathan Larson has just done a phenomenal job writing this music. And I know he's worked on it forever and and over and over and over again. Like, you know, this was the show that he performed himself with his piano as a one-man show in New York. And, um, you know, several people have picked up the flag and carried it on and turned it into a three-piece. And, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda himself was Jonathan Larson for a little while. It's very, very, I don't know, it's timeless to me and it's it's perfect for, for myself. Well, I mean, as well as being a director, you are also an actor. So is it hard stepping back into the director's role when you're just going to want to be in the thick of it and, and be singing? I am not nearly as talented as these guys, so no, not not in this kind of sense. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, I, I'm Mike. an actor. I, I'm not a singer. But, I mean, I, I'll i be in the chorus or something, but definitely not anything like that. But, I mean, I, I'm a tech junkie, so I do the tech stuff a lot of times. I do the lighting. I do the projections. I do media, like hazing. I do uh, if they need fog, that kind of stuff. I kind of do the technical direction stuff. For Capital City. So this is not terribly new for me, but maybe Boss and some of the guys around getting them to, <laughs> hey guys, it's time to start rehearsal, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Tick Tick Boom opens at Capital City Production on Thursday the 13th of May and it runs through Saturday the 15th and you have four chances to see it. Three in the evening at 7.30 plus a matinee performance on Saturday at 1pm. And you can find out more at their website ccpjc. Dot org. Mike Azar and Gordon Kanachel, thank you so much for taking time to chat today. 
Thank you. Thank you. Botanical notions, the art of atmosphere, and the evolutionary landscape are the subplots in a new art exhibit titled Earth, Water, Fire at the Mont Mini Gallery at the Boone History and Culture Centre, which features the work of metal sculptor Don Asby, painter Kate Gray, and fibre artist Joe Staley. And I am going to include this show as one of my top five favourite Columbia shows of all time. The works are gorgeous evocative, playful, captivating, and the curation itself is a work of beauty. And I am so thrilled that Kate Gray, Joe Staley, and Don Asby are here to tell us about the show and their works within it. Hello, master artists. Hello. Hey. Well, I feel compelled just to line up a list of superlative adjectives for this show, as it is truly magnificent. And I wish that we could package it up and send it off on tour around the country so everyone can see it. And it makes me ask, you know, why haven't you three exhibited together before? So, Kate, how did this show all come together? Well, I think it came about with a need for human connection. You know, the show is about our connection with nature. And I was feeling during the pandemic, you know, lost. And uh, what am I making? What am I creating? I, I had lost all of my creative outlets to reach out to folks. And um, I have been friends with Don and Joe for years. And it just so happens we were chatting. And I said, hey, how about we do a social distancing happy hour out on my back porch and we can just get together. And we had a great conversation. We talked about our art. Where's it going? What's it doing? And then we kind of came up with this idea of how fabulous it would be to show together. And over the course of a number of months, it gave us an excuse to get together and discuss dreams of a show of us all coming together in theory so we we reached out we we thought what about the mont mini that would be fabulous what a great stage to show and we reached out and sure enough they had space and the rest of it kind of evolved and making a lot of art and coming to each other's rescue to to all grow and to create a show that like you said it's pretty fantastic i i agree with you i think it's a great show well the title of the show is so beautifully descriptive of the works within it and i laughed when i heard another local radio station wrongly call it earth wind and fire which (laughs) which is the music that comes on when you flick the light switch on in our disco bathroom you hear earth wind and fire so tell me the story about coming up with the title were there other working titles or was it kind of like a eureka moment earth water fire It it was a eureka moment. We met and talked about what's the title of the show? What are we doing with our work? We're all working at our own studios, but yet we're going to have to create a show that all works together. When somebody walks in, they don't go, what were they thinking? (laughs) And so we talked about, in general, what our work was about and where the ties were and how they all connected. We had a couple other ideas 
I think we all knew they weren't quite there. And so we finally sat down and I could still remember Joe getting out her sheet of paper and frantically writing as we were talking about the common threads to the show. And Don was like, you know, I deal with fire and it's about the nature and we're like, oh, earth. And, you know, it was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, the atmosphere and wind and it just kind of popped and we're like, oh, oh, oh my God, you could be earth and you can be your fire. And then I was like, but who am I? You know, and so it was funny. It was, I felt a little lost there for a moment because, you know, my work wasn't really wind. And we go, let's flip it around a little bit to tell a little bit of a more unique story that's rich, you know, for all of us. So we just landed on it. And I remember Don going, that's it. <laughs> that's it. Joe was like, oh, I like it. I'm like, well, then let's stop. <laughs> it is. It is perfect. Well, I'd love to have each of you talk a little bit about your body of work in the show. And Joe, let's start with you. You write that love of nature and mundane moments are my muses. So talk a little bit about that and the components of your work. I've always had an affinity to being out in nature and living in mid-Missouri along the Missouri River has always inspired my work. And so I will often stop on my walks and just look at a rock or the way a twig is bent. And it informs the work that comes out of that. And the other part of everyday life that has inspired me is the domestic environment where I spend a good deal of my time. And I think a lot about Things that my mother did when I was a young child, uh, things that were important to her. And there's two books in the show, and one of them is dedicated specifically to her that was inspired by what I remember of her when she was alive. Well, when you say books, it's not maybe what people are quite expecting. Do you want to describe <laughs> what your book looks like? There are two books in the show, each of which is six feet long, and they hang on the wall in an accordion style. And um, they are two chapters out of five that I am in the process of developing. There will be a book that is dedicated to each member of my family. So far, the first chapter was an autobiographical piece about myself, and the second chapter is about my mother. The third one will be my father, and then I will move on to my brother and sister before the suite is finished. And can you describe the material and, and the, the tactile, well, I guess they're not tactile because you don't want people putting their fingers all over them, but I mean, describe the materials that you use for those books. I think that I do want them to be tactile. I want to seduce you into wanting to touch them. <laughs> Being naughty. <laughs> I know, <laughs> even though we're not supposed to. Um, but uh, they're all recycled materials, handmade paper, collaged elements, old fabrics from aprons and pieces of cloth that I still have from my childhood. Things that I found, things that I've altered. Um, there's leaves from nature that are also incorporated into those books along with some of the other work that's in the show. 
so I not only am inspired by nature, but I actually use materials that I find in nature and process them so that they're archival. And what that means is that they are processed so that they're not going to disintegrate. They become what those of us in the business call pH neutral, which means that they're, they're not going to fall apart anytime soon. It would take a couple of thousand years before there would be any detrimental damage to the materials that I'm using. They do look very delicate. So that is that is good to know because the, the, the delicacy of the leaves, they're just so beautiful and you can see the veining in them and it feels like if you blow on them, they might just you know, fall apart and fall off the, yeah. fall off the work. So <laughs> I'm glad they're well secured. I like that tension that is conceptually in the work where I'm, I'm dealing with a material that looks very ethereal and ephemeral, but at the same time, it's very tough and translucent and skin-like, which you know speaks to human nature where we are vulnerable, but at the same time, we are very tough and we can get through just about anything. Kate, you were one of the first people I met when I came to Columbia 16 years ago, and I have loved watching your work change and develop over that time from super tight watercolor realism to now these wonderful, broad, confident, loose brushstrokes that contain an amazing sense of freedom and energy. And you titled your body of work, The Art of Atmosphere. So tell me, what does that mean to you? Well, I had taken um, an opportunity to step back and and reflect and read some of my journals from years gone by. I think that's healthy sometimes just to check back in. And as I read those journals, almost every entry I started with talked about the sky, what the day looked like. And then I started to realize how important that relationship was for me, the environment in which I live. And it just gave me more insight into how I see. I'm really honoring the sky as this companion, this uh, environment that allows you, someone, to exist, surround you. It warms you. It makes you cold, whatever. It's, it's always there. And so with that, I started a body of work looking at abstracting skies and really, you know, explored color and played with that and movement. And I, I'm a big fan of not now really painting realistically because, you know, you can always take a picture and that can be absolutely beautiful. And so I, I want my work to also embrace this idea of heart and hand and message and emotion. And so I explored that with realistic skies that I remember, and I would write about them. And as I explored that body of work, it quite naturally evolved into me thinking about really what is atmosphere? Because is it really just the sky that we wake up to every day? Atmosphere also exists between people. And the relationships we have, there's an essence, there's an aura between two people. There's also an atmosphere that we have internally with ourselves. And so really broadening the concept of that word atmosphere to be much bigger than just this guy that I wake up and that I had been journaling about to the concept that it is this essence and world around us 
internally our relationships as well as the natural environment was what I was going for with this show and this body work and continually to further abstract that idea as you talked about these bold confident strokes um, came out of that desire to create that message to the viewer atmosphere is about my relationship within myself and how that feels when I, for the first time, feel unconditional love. And then I want to paint that. And how do I, how, I remember the day my father told me that he could not be more proud of me. This is when I was an adult. And the feeling of that is something I wanted to paint and capture as a moment, a relationship that was internal and put it on the canvas. Well, Don, you are representing fire. You yes. come from the background of being an artistic blacksmith who makes huge architectural gates and liturgical sculpture. But when left to your own devices, you take this incredibly hard material, steel, and you heat it up and then you let your imagination run wild. And the body of work you created for this show fills me with such joy. Talk to me about what prompted your collection of trowels, cultivators, hooks and botany. Well, I just wanted to essentially make this very stubborn medium, steel, dance. And uh, that's the, the main thing that keeps me going is to be able to manipulate this medium in a way that can bring the joy to people. And I also wanted to play with the idea of how we struggle to control our environment And, uh, you know, a lot of us are very much, especially since the pandemic started, uh, have found ourselves working in the garden. At least that's what I found myself last year, actually enjoying using some of the tools that I had made for gardening. And I thought, well, we're struggling to beat the bugs and the whatever other challenges arise from our ability to provide food for ourselves. You know, we're trying to control our environment, but at the core of it, it's the environment that is holding all the cards. And so I wanted to kind of play with that juxtaposition of who's really in control. And so some of the, uh, uh, you know, a couple of the sculptures in there kind of suggest that in a very playful way that, you know, we can only fool ourselves so far. <laughs> and, you know, we we can we can provide ourselves with what we need, but we do not control the environment. And uh, that was some of the playfulness. But I also wanted to Uh, explore the form following function. I just happened to like the shape of the trowel that I came up with. And I thought, well, this could be a recurring element in this show as a design element. And, um, you know, if anybody wants to buy any of the displayed trowels, there's certainly 
I encourage them to use them in the garden. They're not going to hurt them, but also they have a certain flow to them that I found very uh, pleasurable to elicit from that very stubborn medium. Well, maybe I should. We should explain that one whole wall has these beautiful, varying hooks. There's some wheat sheaves. There's some ginkgo leaves. There's petals, and these hooks. At the end of the hooks, there is either a trowel that is usable, as you say, or a little three-pronged cultivator. And they are so adorable. And, and I just would like to have a whole set of them, like well. five trowels, because I always lose trowels. Yeah. <laughs> and what, what is great is that they're also affordable. I can finally afford a Don Asby original, which Excellent. is so exciting. Uh, that was, I was working on that. You know, I, I thought that that might be a nice aspect of what I was able to produce in the body of work for this exhibit and not everything in there is priced out of sight it's just there's there's something for everybody here well it is beautiful earth water fire is on display at the mont mini gallery at the boone history and culture center through june the 12th with a reception on may the 20th from 5 30 till 7 30 and that will be set up in accordance with boone county department of health covid19 guidelines but i do encourage you to visit the show when you can be mostly alone with it as it is a show which wants to captivate you without distraction gallery hours are 12 till 4 Thursdays, Fridays and Saturdays and there is no admission charge. Kate Gray, Joe Staley and Don Asby, thank you for this magnificent art show and for today's chat. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Last September, Talking Horse Productions rolled out its inaugural original monologue contest with daily performances released via their Facebook page. It was incredibly compelling. Some were hilarious, some were moving, and many of them stayed with me for the rest of the day. Plus, there was the added bonus of getting to vote for your favourite. It was a brilliant way to keep us engaged during a time of no theatre. And so I was delighted to see that season two of Talking Horse Productions' original monologue series is back and it starts tomorrow. And here to reveal more is Talking Horse's artistic director, Adam Bretsky. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. So back by popular demand, what did you learn from season one that is helping you make season two even better? Gosh, we learned so much from the first season of the original <laughs> monologue contest. Um, you know, the first, I, I just have to say, we were blown away by the reception that we got from it, uh, specifically from the writers and the submissions that we got. You know, when we put out the call for pieces for, for the monologues themselves, I expected to maybe get 10 from local playwrights that had seen our posts. And we ended up getting monologues from literally all around the world. We had two submissions from the UK, one from New Zealand, three from Canada. And, you know, it, it made me stop and, and think like, how, are, how is everybody seeing this? <laughs> and how were they hearing about it? You know, the friends of Talking Horse, we've, we've made a reputation of producing original works and putting on playwrights first plays that they've written. And that reputation has really spread. So those people have made friends and they've shared original works and one person shares a post and all of a sudden it gets this spread and this reach that we just had no idea that we had. 
So what, are, what is the geographical range of this year's entries? I'm really happy to say that we've got people from all over the world again. Again, we've got someone from New Zealand. We've got a couple from Canada. We've got a couple from the UK and then all over the country. Um, it's not just Missouri-based playwrights. It's all over. So at this point, the submission process for both writers and actors is closed. You've reviewed the entries. You've auditioned the actors. What are you prepared to tell us about this season's entries and performances? Well, what I'm really excited about is that this year we've got a really wide array of different types of monologues. Uh, As you mentioned in your intro, we've got some monologues that are going to have you laughing. We've got some monologues that are incredibly moving, especially some that were written within the last year that uh, I think incorporates all the feelings that we've had kind of being in isolation and all the emotion that goes into what happens if you have a loved one that uh, disagrees with you or what happens if you have a loved one that's lost due to this virus. Mm. So I think that there's a nice mix of pieces that are incredibly well acted that will move you. And I think there's another nice mix of performances that are just going to have you laughing out of your chair. Now, last year, you gave actors the option of, I think, of coming to Talking Horse to record there or to record themselves at home. Is that the same this year or have you got more being performed at Talking Horse? More actually have been performed at home this year. Um, And I think that, that kind of speaks to the fact that we're all getting more comfortable with recording ourselves on the computer or on their phones to send in. We've all become kind of this digitally inclined uh, <laughs> populace. Right. So tell me about how you allocate the monologues amongst the actors. Yeah, so it's a difficult process because the first step is we have to select which monologues we're going to use. So this year we got a, a total of 60 monologues that were submitted. Of those 60, we had about 34 actors that submitted to uh, perform. So we have to whittle, of course, the number of monologues that we receive down to the number of actors. And then once we do that, we try to assign to gender and to type to make sure that that makes sense. But then after that, it's just totally random. Last year as well, you, I forget what the time limit was, but I think you and I had a discussion about this and I think you mm-hmm. made it shorter this year. What is the time length? And, and how do you know when you review something, when you read it, how do you know what the time length of it is? Because you might read quicker than somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, that is something that's tough. Well, what we learned is that about eight minutes should be the cutoff. Anything that goes above eight minutes is is probably stretching the attention span of most of our audience. (laughs) Um, And yeah, that's a great question. So anytime I get a monologue to try and see if it's within that time frame, I will actually read it out loud and uh, in a way perform it. If I'm stretching it out past eight minutes, it's probably a good sign that somebody else will. And I think in some cases, it just really comes down to what dramatic flair the actor adds to it. Some take longer pauses and some add something to the language or change up the, the variety of it. But there's no real secret to it. It's, it's just kind of a subjective process. So your writers are international. What Mm -hmm. about your actors? Because again, if you can record from home, you could be an actor in London or New Zealand or anywhere and record. Absolutely. Yeah, we've got a couple of actors from around the country. Uh, I know one that's based out in Texas. But what's really fun about this particular contest is that we get to collect people who 
have maybe performed once at Talking Horse or they performed at Talking Horse long, long ago or, you know, somebody that's never set foot on the Talking Horse stage and this is their first presentation. So it's a great way to kind of collectively bring those people together. What is the directing process for this? People are directing themselves. They may submit something to you and you think, ah, oh, this is just not working. I mean, <laughs> have you got some back and forth with people? No, I try to keep it as as pure as possible. You know, I want to keep it as as fair as possible and allow the actors to apply the same knowledge and, and their own interest into each piece that they produce. Um, you know, one of the things that we do for this contest is we keep it blind. So the actors don't know who's written their monologue. It could be an award-winning playwright. It could be their best friends, but they don't know. <laughs> and, and why do you keep it secret? In a lot of ways, it's to stop any preconceived notions. If you know that you're performing a monologue that's written by a great monologue award winner, you're going to spend tons of time analyzing the text and trying to pull out everything. Whereas if I tell you, oh, this is written by somebody that's in Missouri, I would worry that maybe you wouldn't spend as much time with it. And so we want everybody to go into the monologues as if it's written by a Pulitzer Prize winner. Do you have any Pulitzer Prize winners? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody's won the Pulitzer, no. Not yet, anyway. Well, last year, I recall that the monologue performances could only be seen on Facebook. Uh, has that changed this year? It has, yes. I will be uploading each monologue to the website, TalkingHorseProductions.org, on a daily basis. So, unfortunately, there's no uh, mechanical process to it. I have to do it manually. So, there won't be a set time for those to be uploaded. But generally, by the end of the night, there'll be a new piece every day. And how do people vote for their favorite? And what is the process for winners to win? Yeah, so on each video submission, whether it's on Facebook or our website, there'll be a donate button attached to the video. Every dollar that somebody donates counts as a vote to that particular monologue. At the end of the contest, we're going to do a final donation period that'll go until about June 12th. And then on June 13th, whichever video has received the raised the most amount for Talking Horse Productions, that with video will be declared our winner. And then the prize money that they raise will actually be split evenly between the actor and the writer. So they actually get to keep the amount they raised. So if you really like something, vote. Don't give $1, give $10. Absolutely. Yeah, give as much as you can. And then at the end of the contest, you'll see, okay, here's where my favorite is. This is what I need to donate to catch up. We will actually on the website be able to track how much is donated. So you'll be able to see where everything ranks up. Oh, great. I don't think we could see that last year, right? Right. Yeah. So this that's new to the contest this year. And again, it's it's manually updated. So it may not be as fast as you want, but it will be there. <laughs> Well, season two of Talking Horse Productions' original monologue series starts tomorrow, May the 1st, and continues each day through May the 31st. To watch each day's performance, go to TalkingHorseProductions.org or visit their Facebook page. And as this is a fundraiser for Talking Horse, don't forget to vote with your dollars. Winners will be announced on, is it June the 13th? June 13th. Perfect. Adam Bretsky, love your work. Thanks for the chat. Thank you so much. <laughs> That is it for another week. 
All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingoftheartstransistorfm or you can connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests today, Bill Horner and Stacey Wilfel from the University of Missouri, Mike Azar and Gordon Kanachel from Capital City Productions, artists Kate Gray, Joe Staley and Don Asby, and Adam Bretsky from Talking Horse Productions. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com and she will also be in Columbia next week for the True False Film Fest. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia! Columbia!